A preview of the legislative session and a conversation with House Speaker Cameron Sexton. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of January 13th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Welcome to the start of the legislative session. Yeah, happy first day of session, everyone. It it kicks off today. We are uh, recording in advance of that, but we wanted to do a step back for new readers uh, or listeners. Uh, A lot of people may not know what the heck the Tennessee General Assembly does and or why it matters to their lives. So uh, for you loyal listeners, maybe, you know, tune in, tune out, whatever you got to do. Definitely tune in for sure. (laughs) But we want to get down to the basics before we get to our conversation later on with House Speaker Cameron Sexton. So, uh, Natalie, uh, kick it off. Uh, The session starts today. And how long is it going to go? Well, this is the second half of the 111. 11th General Assembly. So here in Tennessee, each General Assembly lasts two years. So um, members of the House would uh, be there for that uh, full two-year term. And then the Senate, it's it's staggered. They have four-year terms, but um, about half of them are up for re-election each year. So anyway, this is the second half of the 111th that started um, last January. They got out in early May, um, were out all summer, came back for a one-day special session in August, essentially to swear in a new House Speaker um, under circumstances that we have covered in many <laughs> previous episodes. Um, and then they are starting back today and are expected to be in session until uh, probably late April, um, at which time they'll all have to run, at least in the House, they'll all have to run for re-election if they want to come back. And some basics of the membership of the chambers, uh, for those that don't know, the Republicans have supermajority status in both the House and the Senate. That essentially means that they have uh, uh, just a ton of members in each chamber. Uh, the, the numbers come down to uh, 26 Democrats out of 99 seats uh, in the House. So the Republicans have 73 seats. And in the Senate, there are 28 Republicans and five Democrats. There is a supermajority which essentially means, as we look at the legislative session, Democrats aren't necessarily involved in in helping kind of um, uh, form the conversation. They're often involved in the conversation. They often push Republicans to take a stance and either have to defend it or maybe even, uh, you know, encourage them to adopt some of their positions. But Republicans have such a stranglehold on power that they can uh, vote in favor of any bill, provided they stay in lockstep in each chamber. And last year, um, under House Speaker, former House Speaker Glenn Cassida, um, a lot of those Democrats weren't given much of an opportunity to, to share their thoughts on on the floor and floor debates. Um, notably, Gloria Johnson would, would stand there with her hand raised for a long time, and people like John Ray Clemens and Bo Mitchell, who would often, um, you know, they would they would like to talk and debate bills that obviously never stood a chance passing, they just wouldn't get called on. Whereas now House Speaker Cameron Sexton has said at least that he is going to make a point to make sure that everyone's voice is heard and that Democrats also have um, a a chance to partake in that conversation and that process. Uh, Some other things, there will be uh, the State of the State, that's the governor's annual address to both chambers of the legislature. And the governor is? Oh, the governor is Bill Lee. This is uh, his going into his second year in office. He'll, I think around January, 
January 18th is the the one year, 19th, 19th I think. Uh, is the one year anniversary of his inauguration. He's a Republican governor. He'll give his annual address February 3rd that evening uh, in the House chamber. to say. Uh, they- he is expected to yeah. give his <laughs> annual address, his annual State of the State address in early February, potentially the 3rd. Um, and then as of right now, the bill filing deadline for members is February 5th. So they will have to get all their bills filed that day. That doesn't mean that some of them won't file what we call caption bills, which is essentially a very vague bill that can be tweaked later. And for those who don't know anything about the legislature, this is very uh, broad. But essentially, uh, in order to get a law, a bill has to pass both chambers of the legislature. So the Senate has its own version of a bill. The House has its own version. They have to marry that. Uh, Every year, there are roughly anywhere from 1,100 to 1,500 or even more bills filed. We try to pour through all of them and watch them go through the process. Um, Many bills will die. A whole ton of bills will die. Um, But any time that there is something uh, interesting, uh, outlandish, which there will be many, uh, we will try and highlight both on this podcast, but also in the Tennessean and USA Today uh, network papers uh, throughout the session. Another reason you should subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, so more generally, Natalie, why should people care about what happens in the uh, Tennessee General Assembly? Because the laws that are passed in this body affect your day-to-day life. They affect um, what happens to your children at schools and what kind of education they're getting. They affect your civil liberties. They affect, um, in some cases, your your health and your ability to to pay for health care. Um, basically, any aspect of your life really is is debated and discussed and voted on every year here at the General Assembly. And that's why um, groups on both sides of the political spectrum will um, pay lots of money to have lobbyists to fight for their causes and will mobilize groups of people in matching T-shirts to come, you know, swarm the Capitol and sit in the gallery and hold signs and protest uh, because what they're doing here really does matter. And, and as we talked to other folks like a couple of weeks ago when we talked to former Governor Bill Haslam, he notes that, you know, a lot of people pay attention to federal legislation, what happens by, you know, presidential tweet, uh, what comes out of Congress, which doesn't seem to be much these days, uh, what happens happens in the Tennessee General Assembly and on your local level, so your your city council, uh, your city commission, that really does have a direct impact on you. A couple years ago, uh, the governor and the legislature adopted a gas tax increase. That meant that you were going to have to pay more at the pump. Uh, at the same time, they also changed how much you would have to uh, pay in taxes for your uh, uh, food. Um, so really, that's why you should care about this. Um, uh, finally, let's uh, give a, a brief preview of what we might expect uh, from this upcoming session. Uh, First off, there might be some division between the legislature and the governor's office. Uh, Late last year, Governor Bill Lee uh, announced a move to accept refugee resettlement via a federal program. Uh, That was a decision that the president of the United States gave local uh, governments, so states, the authority to decide whether they wanted to accept or reject refugees. Tennessee, a few years ago, implemented a or, or passed a resolution to direct the state to sue the federal government over refugee resettlement. So Governor Lee's decision led to a lot of consternation among members in the legislature. So it wouldn't be surprising to see if that consternation and a couple of other instances where lawmakers have been frustrated plays out throughout this session. So we'll be on the lookout for that. And and as soon as the governor announced that he was going to continue to accept refugees at a 
decision that he had put off for some time. Uh, it seemed like he was weighing his options, knowing that it would be a controversial decision. As soon as he announced, yes, uh, we're going to continue to accept refugees, at least for the next year, um, he was immediately met with uh, basically a statement condemning his decision by both the House and the Senate speakers, um, as well as, you know, a number of other Republican lawmakers. And then um, certainly some of the the more outspoken conservative commoners online who who say that they, they, they couldn't believe a conservative governor would do that. So it will be interesting to see what the legislature decides to do, uh, potentially to push back against the governor's decision. There's a, a couple of other things that we're going to be highlighting, and, and you can, in addition to this podcast, find many of our previews and, and what we're saying here uh, in our legislative previews that are either printed in the paper or online. So please check those out. Um, aside from issues, we're thinking in the preview of this, some things that will likely pop up, and those include everything from uh, Representative David Byrd uh, to controversy over a bus. Natalie, give people some background on on that plus uh, the former House Speaker. Yeah, well, these are these are some issues that uh, a number of members, certainly Republican members, last session would describe as distractions. Like they are tired of these distractions. They're tired of these protesters coming up here, um, making noise about Representative David Byrd, who's been accused of sexual assault, still being in the legislature, and they're tired of these protesters coming up here um, and protesting the bust of the Confederate general, early Klan leader Nathan Bedford Forrest, and and they're tired of being asked about these questions when they could be talking about other policies. Um, and and these are these things are going to continue. So the the protesters who are calling for birds removal or resignation have pledged they will continue to do that. They will be there on the first day of session. They say um, same thing with the bust. It resulted in multiple arrest folks who were um, you know trying to. Uh, access the bus or who would refuse to leave or in one case uh, tossed allegedly tossed a, a cup of liquid on House Speaker Glenn Casta in the process. Um, all of that's going to keep happening. Um, and then and then the question remains, what what role will Casta have this session? Um, so he last year he was he was the the top dog. It was you know he he implemented so many different changes and his way or the highway. And um, he did have a lot of loyalty from a number of members and all of that has, has come apart. And now he is just a regular member. Um, but you know, he still has a couple decades almost worth of experience um, in government. And so that doesn't go away. So he still will have some pull and it'll be interesting to see if he does throw any grenades this session, if he does try to undermine um, the agenda of the current house speaker. Again, these things that we're discussing uh, uh, that are on the preview side, you can find in our newspaper uh, today, and you can also read about online. Uh, we will continue to monitor all of the legislative interactions for the next several months, as well as what the governor's office proposes. Uh, right now, we don't have a good idea aside from generalities. This is an election year. That essentially means that every member of the House, 99 members, are up for re-election unless they don't want to seek re-election. Uh, that also means half of the Senate is up for re-election. Uh, with that in mind, members are going to want to get out of uh, the legislature early because during the session, they're not allowed to raise money and they're not really able to campaign because of how much time they spend uh, in uh, Nashville. So uh, it will be the thing in the back of the mind of everybody uh, that they want to get out of here. So uh, that's it for our preview right now. Stay tuned for a conversation with House Speaker Cameron Sexton, who will take us through what he thinks will happen this session. 
this week on the podcast, we have with us House Speaker Cameron Sexton. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. We wanted to kick things off uh, pretty easy. Uh, so what's the upcoming session look like from at least a House perspective? Uh, what do you think are going to be some of the big issues? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we're always uh, pay very close attention to the budget. And, you know, we move our budget process up to the fall this year uh, or in 2019 to help us have a, a more elongated timetable to look at the budget and not be so quick with it. Uh, so I think you'll see more deliberation on us on the budget side uh, this coming year. I think you'll see some big initiatives by the governor. We're kind of looking at what he's wanting to do on criminal justice reform. Um, I think in the House side, we're really looking at a lot of health care reform. I think there'll be uh, a little bit of education. Not Don't know how much uh, that may be. Um, and then I think the, the TANF issue will will be worked on for, I think, for the next couple of years. I don't think it's a, a three-month solution. When you when you say that, the, you know, the governor's office has indicated criminal justice reform, have they said anything specific yet? Is this going to be a massive overwrite of the entire system, or is it kind of what we've been expecting is sort of a piecemeal multi-year approach. Yeah, I think they're looking at a multi-year approach. I mean, I don't think it's something that you can do overnight anyway, so I think that's the right approach. You know, he, he had his criminal justice task force that just completed, and they released their results maybe a week or two ago. Um, so we're still looking at that. You know, I think one thing on the House side that we're really looking at is truth and sentencing to add to what he's looking at, not a whole rewrite of the criminal structure, but really look at some of those more heinous, violent crimes and see if we can't go into more of a federal uh, mirror uh, for sentencing. And on health care reform, what what does that mean to you? Well, it, it, it means a lot. You know, we've been for at least the last four or five years really trying to push some reforms, trying to figure out how to approve accessibility, affordability, and transparency. Uh, so I think this year we're looking at uh, telemedicine. I think you'll see something. Uh, payment parity, I think. Uh, we're definitely looking at why are rural physicians or providers reimbursed at a lower rate than urban areas for the same outcomes and for the same procedures. Uh, why is that happening? Uh, I think you also will see us come back with certificate of need reform and really try to get government out of the way and open up the free market process in that. And 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 then kind of an overall feel is, is really trying to get it to where we're empowering the patient and the providers and, and maybe not so much the insurance companies in the process. Um, and then really trying to create a marketplace where you understand what the costs are, can research what the costs, transparency and costs, so that you can have uh, an ability to know what procedures cost. Not emergency things, I understand sometimes you, you can't do that, but really trying to get us into what a normal marketplace would look like. So this this past session, the focus was on healthcare was on the, the block grant, which um, dealt with excuse me, 10 care patients. It seems like this year the, the folks would be more for people who are in the private insurance market. Is that sort well, of I mean, the I think, I think it, it, it targets everybody. I don't think you can meet any Tennessean or anybody who says that they think their health care is affordable, right? I think whether you have it or don't have it, no one's saying it's affordable. So I really think that we need to do a better job of understanding how we get to that point. And, and having a freer market, I think, helps. I think there's an issue in the healthcare marketplace when the insurance company owns the PBMs, who also owns their own pharmacies, and they're also involved in the EMS process. I think that creates a problem. Um, and so I think intricately, there's some very interesting issues we're going to have to deal in with healthcare if we truly want to have affordable. And the basic question we need to ask, because everybody has a varying opinion, is what is a basic health care insurance policy? What is that? Is that a high deductible, low deductible, copay? 
because you ask 10 people, you're probably going to get 10 different answers. So we really need to boil down what is a basic health care plan and what does it look like? When I talked to um, members of the Senate Republican Caucus back in, I think it was November that they had their retreat, one of the things that came up that they said they anticipated at least them bringing up this year was uh, uh, judicial reform. Um, is that something that you guys are kind of uh, also working on in the House or is that might that be a conflict between the two chambers? No, I mean, I think there was meetings this summer. Uh, I think they had the judicial task force for redistricting. I think that's what you're mm-hmm. alluding to. I, I, my understanding is, is they come back with their recommendation and I don't really see it becoming a problem. I think the recommendations will be taken. I, I have not heard of, of uh, anyone wanting to change them at this point. So I think those things have been worked out this, this summer for us when we get back. And then you also mentioned TANF. What can we expect to see with that? Well, I don't, I don't, once again, I don't think we can fix that like criminal justice reform. We can't fix that in three months. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a program where we all want the same thing, which is to help people get back on their feet, to get back off of government assistance. And we have uh, a very great flexibility in it because it's a grant, kind of like we're trying to get with the block grant for 10 care. It's a grant program where we have flexibility and we can do some stuff with opioid treatments. We can do childcare, housing. Uh, there's a lot of things that we workforce development that we can do in there. But the, the, the essential goal for me is how do we take away the government disincentive to work in that program, because when you make $1 over an alleged amount of income, you lose all your benefits. And so what people call that is a leap of faith for people to get off government assistance. You have to have a leap of faith. And so let's figure out how we can make this to where people can work. And as they work and they are able to become self-sufficient, they don't lose all their benefits. We just kind of lessen them as their income goes up until they get to a point where they have enough money to survive on. So would would you like to see legislation that is going to essentially uh, change the eligibility requirements for people receiving TANF? Well, I don't know if we need to change the eligibility. What I'm saying is, is change the process and how this thing works and and reward people for wanting to go work. Don't don't well, to allow them to still away. be eligible for benefits. That's right. A, a lesser amount, but not an all or nothing mentality. An all or nothing mentality doesn't really help people get off of government assistance. It more or less keeps them on. We can do things with workforce development in the system, but at the end of the day, Whatever we come up with, I want it to be a solution of trying to get people to be self-sufficient and self-reliant outside of government. And whatever that process is, is what we need to do. And the last thing I'll say on it, too, is it's about providing cash assistance to help people. But also, at the end of the day, if you're just giving somebody X number of dollars to pay for their housing, the next month you're going to need to give them X number of dollars for housing. The question is, are there additional wraparound services and resources that they need to make them a whole person to meet their unique needs and what they need to have to be successful when they come off? Because if we're not trying to meet that need, then we're going to have problems with their relapse or coming back on. So so we there's more to it than just this money here and this money here. It's more about taking the principles that we put in our economy and, and putting them into other areas of state government. I wanted to move on to a couple of issues that could come up. Um, one of them most recently being the refugee resettlement decision by the governor uh, to continue to allow refugees to resettle in Tennessee. You and L- Lieutenant Governor uh, McNally seemingly opposed the governor's decision on it. Um, what do you as speaker want to see happen from the legislature in response to the governor's decision? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, You know, I I think there will be some type of response. There's been a lot of meetings. From my understanding, I haven't seen all the legislation, but I think a lot of members are looking at filing different pieces of legislation. I don't know to what extent that is. 
Um, so I, I think I think there will be some type of solution or solutions that we may go down this road. Um, what I will say is, as we keep looking, we keep uncovering more and more potential issues that we have. And you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about how we'd like for fiscal review to make a determination of how much money this might cost, depending on how many people are on it. And what we've determined is as soon as they're accepted as refugees um, into into America, they automatically get a Social Security card, which then you lose the ability to really understand who's on what when they come into your state. And so the other issue it creates is if they come into California and they move to Tennessee, they're automatically available for benefits if they meet the eligibility because the Social Security card, you can't you can't identify who's who. So so really what we really need to do is to have a better job a better job of figuring out how many we have because I don't think anybody really knows how many currently are in the state of Tennessee. And then also trying to determine, you know, what kind of cost that is. I think that's paramount as far as where we move to as we're looking for legislation. Do you anticipate, though, some kind of legislation a la Bruce Griffey's that would essentially call to halt refugee resettlement and direct the governor to uh, essentially, um, you know, change his decision? Is that even legal? Well, I mean, that that's a good question. We're working with legal on, on the parameters of his bill. I think uh, I think that piece of legislation probably have to be amended to a certain degree based on what I am hearing back from the legal department. You know, you could also have potential resolutions saying, you know, that this the governor signed a one-year, made a one-year commitment, is having people come in with a resolution saying, like we did with the, the block, uh, not the block grant, but like we did 10-care expansion, which is if you're going to go down this road again, you're going to have to have legislative approval. I think that option is coming as well. When um – we spoke around the time the governor came out with this decision. Um, you had mentioned that, you know, you you all were surprised by the decision. You, at that point, hadn't heard from him on it. Have you been able to talk to the governor about his decision? And do you think either of you have more of an understanding of where the other is on it? Um, we, we haven't delved into the uh, his decision. Uh, we've talked about, you know, um, with Lieutenant Governor McNally, how we can all uh, communicate and work better together. You know, whether or not we agree on one single issue or a host of issues or don't doesn't affect what's going to happen next. And, you know, the governor's a great person. And I've, I firmly believe he made the decision that he thought was best. And, and he had the ability to do that. And even though the lieutenant governor and I disagree with it, we respect the fact that he has the ability to make that decision. And, you know, as we move forward. Another point of uh, disagreement between Bill Lee and Cameron Sexton is school vouchers. Um so there's been legislation with bipartisan support so far introduced this session to repeal the voucher bill. What do you want to see happen with that bill? Well, like everything else, what I promise is for all legislation to have a fair hearing in the committee system. And so that's that's the goal. And whether someone brings legislation about X, Y, or Z, everybody deserves to be treated the, the same way in, in fair and committee. And so if someone brings legislation on that or any other issue in education, then they'll have the ability to have a hearing in, in education and we'll see what happens. As a voucher opponent, do you see yourself supporting that? effort? Well, we'll have to wait and see where it's at. You know, we've never really gone back and undone legislation before in the past of something that's passed by a constitutional majority. Um, so the president's really not there for us to undo something like that, in my opinion, at least in the, the, the bit that I've been here. So that's out of the ordinary to do something like that. So we'll just have to wait and see. This will be your first full session uh, as speaker. Of course, you presided over this special session that we had in the fall. Um, prior to last uh, legislative, the full 
session in January, there were several rule changes that the House Republican Caucus ultimately voted on and then were adopted by the chamber. Uh, One of them was to uh, essentially ban live streaming uh, in the House chamber. Uh, and even allow committee members to uh, ban such uh, live streaming. Where are you at on that? I haven't asked you that. Well, before. we have live streaming in the House. The, the, the state of Tennessee does it. Having individual members live stream themselves is not a good policy. What to about have. members of the it, public, though? Um, in the balcony, I mean, we don't know who's live streaming or not for the most part. Um, what I will say is when you look at uh, Congress and, and the federal government and even other states, they don't allow live streaming. And Congress doesn't even allow you taking your cell phones into committee rooms. We're not that restrictive. So, you know, I think I think there's a, there's a middle ground, a hybrid that we can do. And, you know, we live stream everything, so I don't understand the I'm, importance of members. I'm going to briefly correct you because I went to the uh, House Judiciary during the impeachment uh, trial, and I was allowed to have my phone, but every time people brought it out, they were, you know, slapping you your arm. You can't have them wrist, in the gallery, though. That's okay. Oh, so on the floor, you can't. And 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 the other question: uh, Do you anticipate any rule changes before you know the session begins? Um, yeah, I mean we're working on. It. I talked to Speaker Pro Tem Bill Dunn today about some stuff on House rules. Um, uh, not doing a whole rewrite of anything. But, but one of them, I, I believe, was to kind of end... Um, personal orders. Personal orders. Do you, well, we're not those making those, th- that kind of change. You know, I'm okay. looking at you know Speaker Pro Tim and how he goes back and how he can vote in committee. I've talked to him about that. You know, We've really looked at, over the last four months, um, looked at the process and procedures of the House, and we're making some changes um, in the House on, on policy and procedures and, and really trying to change how we redo our sexual harassment training. I've been on the phone with both leaders today explaining the new direction that we want to go on that. Any any idea that you can elaborate on? Will it be in, in-person training? It's, go, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a two-phase is what we're hoping for is one is to have small groups with staff and small groups with members to where they, they are being able to ask questions to legal and going through a scenario. And what we've talked about is when we make that decision, we're going to have a small group for for the media so that they know what that's like so they can experience it as well. And then the second part of it would be um, getting into something in the summer to where there's some type of presentation that you do, like a normal business that you can watch, and then you answer questions afterwards, trying to de- to learn about what sexual harassment is or isn't and how to report it or so forth. Why the need for the change? Well, I mean, I think currently when we look at it and we do it on the House floor, um, you know, it, uh, is it beneficial for all? Hard to say. Is it beneficial for some? Yes, probably. Is it the best way to do that? that I don't know any other business that brings everybody in one room and sets them down and goes through it, right? I mean, most of the sexual harassment training and other training I've gone through in, in places where I've worked has been small group or individualized, and I think we need to mirror that so we can um, – have people ask a lot of questions and and really have a better understanding in today's world what sexual harassment is. From the best that Joel and I can recall, uh, former Speaker Cassidy had vowed to support incumbents in their Republican primary challenges. Um, where are you on that? Well, I mean, in the past, I've supported Republican uh, members, um, incumbents in their primaries. I've never really ever gotten involved on the other side in, in open seats. Um, uh, but I, we would support members in their primaries. It's on a case-by-case scenario on a very wide-ranging factors and for those who might need help and those who may not need help. So that would include what kind of support, for example? Well, it, it could mean anything. It could be doing a fundraiser. It could be giving money. It could be going into their district and helping them campaign. It, it could be a whole host of things. There's nothing limited to it. So the, the, the House Republican Caucus 
does sometimes get involved in primary no. races. No. Okay. So where's it, the, where would that caucus, money be coming from? So so in the caucus bylaws, it states clearly that the House caucus, the campaign committee, the money that the House caucus raises cannot be used in the primary. Only for the general? Only for the okay. general election. So, so that money would be coming from just PACs from members or? Um, members can support members. Um, members can support anybody they want. It could come from members' PACs, you know. I mean, it could come from a different places, um, but the House caucus bylaws prohibit using it in the primary, even for an incumbent member. So there might be some CAMPAC money going out to incumbents this spring. Um, there very well could. There could be some going out before session. You never know, but um, but we'll just kind of wait and see. Uh, another question that is sort of related to that is what you all are going to do about supporting David Byrd if he decides to run. Um, so you, uh, in 2018, had donated to his campaign from your PAC. Uh, would you do that again this time if he decides he's going to run? Well, I think that donation was a general election donation, too, as well. Um, you know, like I said, you know, it's on a case-by-case scenario on, on who needs help. There's no definite answer that he's running, so it's hard to answer that question. When but you if, he were, if, he's, if he were, if he says he is? Well, I mean, like, we'll have to, we'll have to take a look and see. You know, I think when, I, when we've had conversation with him, he, he talks about how strong he is in his district. So I wouldn't anticipate that he would need uh, money um, based on what he has said how strong he is. So... You know, as we move forward, as I said, you know, we will help members um, when they need help. Um, it's on case by case scenario. You know, some don't ever need help. Some may not. Some may. So we'll just have to wait and see. Okay. Well, that's all we've got today. Thank you for coming in. Appreciate it as always. Thank you. I've been polishing up on my ping pong game. I'm not good. Are you ready enough. to play? I'm not. I'm not there yet. Oh, boy. Um, I'm, Next I'm, time. I'm, I'm trying to figure out some. <laughs> some different ways. Last time for the record, I believe I won. Yes. Yes, you did. No, I can admit admit defeat sometimes. That's fine. (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you. And it's time for this week's Notebook Dump. U.S. Representative Phil Rowe has announced that he will not run for re-election next year to Congress, which has basically set off a mad dash for uh, politicians and potential politicians in Upper East Tennessee um, scrambling to run for his seat. Representative Bruce Griffey, who has yet to pass a single bill in his one year in office, introduced a measure that would chemically require chemical castration for sex offenders who uh, their victim was under the age of 13. Governor Bill Lee announced this past week that the state would be making huge changes to its current family leave policy. It will now be covering up to 12 weeks paid leave uh, for a number of family leave situations, including uh parental leave for uh, new parents and those receiving adopted children and foster kids, uh, those taking care of a sick relative, um, someone who is sick themselves who needs time off, uh, as well as someone who is dealing with an urgent situation um, related to a family member being deployed. Uh, Tennessee could potentially be the first state in the country that has this wide-ranging paid family leave policy and for this long for state employees. And as you heard earlier on this podcast from House Speaker Cameron Sexton, there will be a new sexual harassment training system in the House. That will be the fourth uh, version of training in the last four years once it's implemented. Uh, And a reminder, in the last four years, there have also been four lawmakers all in the House face allegations of either sexual misconduct, sexual assault, or sexual harassment. 
That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, etc. Please continue to rate us. As always, we uh, will be back here every week, the entirety of the legislature, provided there are no uh, crazy uh, things that prevent us. It can uh, happen. E- either illness or vacation or whatever it may be. Uh, you can find us on, on uh, Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. John Garcia and Erica Whitney produce this podcast. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.